2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Give ear to the word of God this morning. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, you may have, maybe you're noticing that this is the third week we've been on this passage in 2 Timothy as we've gone through the book together. And a couple Sundays ago when we were looking at verses 8 through 10, and I was trying to deal with the whole passage uh, together and deal with all the different particulars in it, um, I saw that there was a couple things that Paul touches on in those verses, uh, mainly verses 9 and 10, that I thought warranted a little bit more of our time and consideration. And the first of those things we looked at last Sunday, if you were here, and that's where Paul tells us that, that the word of God could not be bound and cannot be bound. Remember, he said he was in prison suffering as a criminal for the sake of the gospel, but he says the word of God is not Bound, And that is a conviction that every one of us who believe in Christ should share uh, wholeheartedly and enthusiastically. We should have confidence that the word of God is living and active, able to do all kinds of things, and that even the gospel itself is the power of God unto the salvation of all who believe. Well, the second thing, in some way, even if you may not see right away how it does, but the second thing, which is in verse 10, in a lot of ways follows closely along with the first and that is the way that Paul mentions the doctrine of election in relation to the confidence that he had in the word of God and his willingness because of that to endure whatever might come his way for the sake of preaching the gospel of Christ. Look again at verse 10 briefly. He says, Therefore I endure everything or all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you were here last week, you might remember we said that, you know, we noted that Paul uses the word therefore there, the first word of the verse, and that this points us back to what he had said in the previous verses. And so what he's saying there is it's precisely because of the fact that the word of God cannot be bound or hindered that Paul was so willing to endure all the sufferings that he faced on account of his faithfulness and zeal in preaching the gospel of Christ. It's because he knew he was confident the word of God couldn't be bound and that sinners would be saved. That's why he did what he did. Now, it may seem a little bit strange to some that Paul chose, uh, that's a pun, to use the word elect or chosen in referring to those who were going to believe on Christ at his preaching and obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul call those who were going to believe? Why does he call them there? the elect. Why does he bring it up here? You know, you can be sure that his word choice, calling them the elect, was no accident. You know, Paul, you know, I think I've mentioned before in our Sunday night studies, if not in sermons lately, that, you know, we look at the shorter catechism and sometimes you look at the wording and you wonder, you know, does it really matter what the different words are? And we've seen as we've gone through it, um, there's not much, if any, words wasted. The, the phrases they use, the Westminster Divines, the, the exact words they use are very particular and for a very good reason and purpose. Well, even more so, that is the case with Scripture. And we can be sure that, that Paul's choice of the word elect here 
was no accident. That, that word choice was, it was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. And not just that, but Paul's choice of the term elect to refer to believers, those who are going to obtain the salvation that's in Christ. This word choice uh, itself forms a, a critical part of Paul's argument in this text. He brings it up with good reason, and he applies it with good reason. The truth of the doctrine of divine election itself, that itself was part of the reason that Paul was so zealous to preach the gospel, and also part of the reason why he was so willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Christ in order to preach it. The doctrine of election was one of the things that kept Paul going when things got rough. Notice that Paul in our text in no way seeks to explain his use of the word here, although he does do that at length elsewhere. If you are wondering what some passages are that you could look at and read on your own to kind of see what, what, how Paul explains and defends this text, this idea, look at Romans chapter 9, pretty much the whole chapter in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 in many ways deals with that doctrine in repeated ways. And more than that, Paul doesn't seem compelled, he doesn't seem to feel compelled to defend this great doctrine of grace as he mentions it here in our text. It's also not the first time in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy, for example, it's not the first time in these two books that Paul brings this doctrine up. He does it more often than you might think. So in our text, Paul simply assumes it he states it in passing, so to speak. Part of that may have been due to the fact you might say to yourself, well, look who he's writing to. He's writing to Timothy, his true child uh, in the faith, what he calls him in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. And Timothy was a pastor. He had studied under Paul uh, himself personally. Uh, but that's not the only reason Paul could do this without giving any real defense or explanation of it. These letters, even the fact that we're preaching them today, is, is evidence that these letters were, were intended from the start to be read in the churches in general. It was not just written for Timothy's own personal benefit. Paul wrote these words knowing and intending that what he wrote to Timothy was going to be read to the churches. And so it, it's not without reason he chose the wording he did and did it for good reason. It was to be read to the entire church, and he expected what he said here to be accepted by all sincere believers. Now, in the space of one sermon, we don't have time to examine such a, a great lofty doctrine exhaustively. We can't answer every possible question or, or things like that. But we hope to look at just a few things about this doctrine from our text. Uh, first thing that we want to look at briefly is the doctrine of election defined or explained. What exactly does it mean? What does Paul mean when he talks about those who are elect? Secondly, the doctrine of election defended. So defined, defended from scripture. And lastly, but not least, really the, the main thing Paul does here is we want to look at the doctrine of election applied. The doctrine of election applied. So, uh, applied. so defined, defended, and applied. So let's look first at the doctrine of election uh, briefly at least defined or explained. The first thing that we must do is make sure that we understand what we're talking about. What is Paul talking about here when he uses this word? When Paul speaks of the elect and so divine election, what exactly does he mean? What is he talking about? To be sure, Paul uses this and other terms like it throughout his epistles. There may not be one of his epistles 
that doesn't have something about this doctrine included in it. So, you know, really, if, if this truth makes you somehow uncomfortable, you're going to have a rather difficult time reading the epistles of Paul or even of Peter, for that matter. You know, try as you may, uh, it will be nearly impossible to avoid it. And that's true in the, of the Old Testament as well, if you have the eyes to see it. When Paul in Romans 9, for example, goes to establish this doctrine, where does he go to do it? The Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus. That is where he teaches and finds and bases his teaching in. Now, the word, the noun that Paul uses here in the Greek uh, for elect is found at least 22 times in the New Testament. Many of those instances are found in the Gospels where Christ himself uses uh, that very word. Uh, the other, one of the other words, one of the verb forms is also found 22 times in the New Testament as well. Uh, one of those is, you know, Jesus says something like, like this in the Gospels. Many are called, but few are chosen. Same word, same word he uses here. Uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul uses that very same word. He says uh, that even as he, Ephesians 1 4, Paul says, even as he, and that is God, even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So it's something Paul brings up again and again and again. And really the scriptures do in general as well. Now the doctrine of election in essence is this. I'll try to summarize it as briefly as I can. God by his grace chooses from all eternity those whom he will save in Jesus Christ. There's more that could be said, but that's the basic gist of it. God, by his grace, chooses from all eternity those whom he will save in Christ. The shorter catechism, uh, question 20, gives us a good definition uh, in, in part of giving another answer. It says, uh, question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? So the, the questions right before that were all dealing with sin and misery and the state of man outside of Christ in sin. And so when it brings up election, it's not without reason that the first time it comes up in the, in the, in the shorter catechism, it's as an answer to our sin and misery. In other words, did God leave us to get what we deserved? No. And how did he go about not doing that? It says, answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. It's a doc, it's a, there's a reason we call this one of the doctrines of grace because it's exactly what it is. And we don't understand it properly if we don't understand it in that context. In his book, Grace Unknown, R.C. Sproul, if you don't have that book, if you're curious to learn more about the doctrines of grace, that's a good place to start. But Grace Unknown is the name of the book. R.C. Sproul gives the following definition of predestination broadly, including election as one aspect of it. He says, in summary, we may define predestination broadly as follows. From all eternity, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved unto everlasting blessedness in heaven and he chose others to pass over, allowing them to suffer the consequences of their sins, eternal punishment in hell. 
Now, one of the things we have to keep straight with any definition of this doctrine is that God, God not only chooses the ends, he also chooses the means to that end. And so what that means is God chose the end being the salvation of the elect, but he also chooses the means to that end, which are things like the preaching of the gospel, repentance, and faith in Christ, and things such as that. That's one of the keys to avoiding misunderstandings and distorting this great gospel doctrine of grace. The Confession of Faith puts this, this idea well. It says this in Confession of Faith 3.6. It says, As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he, uh, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, or effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working through uh, in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. That's a, a very basic uh, snapshot of what that of, of that part of this of this doctrine. God foreordains the end, and He also foreordains the means. He doesn't elect someone to salvation apart from also electing them to hear the gospel in due time and to repent and believe on Him and persevere in that faith. All these things go together. All these things are a part of God's grace in the salvation of every sinner who will ever be saved. So how do we know who the elect or the chosen are? Maybe you're wondering that as we're sitting here reading this, you're thinking, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know? Really, that's the main question you should be asking, not as how does somebody else, how do we know if somebody else is elect? But how do you know if you or someone else is elect? It's not a trick question. We don't have a pair of x-ray specs. We've joked about that in the past. If, if God gave us as pastors and elders a special pair of glasses, there was an old movie that I, I can't recommend to some of you, but where there were aliens on the earth and they put these glasses on, they could see them, and when they took them off, they looked like normal people. God doesn't give pastors special glasses. Oh, this person's elect, I'll preach to them. That would make our job so much easier. We could preach to people we know are going to respond favorably. That would be fantastic. doesn't give us that option. Paul's in prison when he wrote these words, so we know not even Paul had that as an option, right? How do we know who the elect are? First and foremost, they believe. That's the main evidence of election is that someone actually believes in Christ. They are those who will in due time come to a saving faith in Christ uh, and who share in all the blessings purchased by Christ in his work of redemption. That is, they are justified, they are adopted, they are sanctified, they will be glorified. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 5. There he says this. Here's Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How? How does Paul know that God had chosen them for salvation? Did Paul have x-ray specs? Did he have some kind of special in by the Holy Spirit? No, he says, We know, brothers beloved by God, that he, that's God, has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, they believed. The power of the gospel unto salvation bore fruit in their lives. 
Paul knew that God had chosen them to salvation because they believed on Christ at the preaching of the gospel. He says it again in the next book. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, he says this to the same church. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God's election of them bore fruit in their believing the gospel and their being sanctified by the Spirit. And it was evidence that God loved them. God's election is a matter of God's love being set on sinners from before the foundation of the world. As we're going to see towards the end of our study together, Lord willing, the doctrine of election does not make the preaching of the gospel unnecessary. The doctrine of election does not make the preaching of the gospel unnecessary. Far from it. In fact, the doctrine of election makes the preaching of the gospel effective and hopeful. It's the only reason we have true and honest hope that the, that the preaching of the gospel will succeed. John Stott puts it this way. He says, We notice in passing that the doctrine of election does not dispense with the necessity of preaching. On the contrary, it makes it essential. Why? Because God chooses the means as well as the ends. Well, the second thing I want to do is briefly at least offer a biblical defense of this great doctrine. There are many, as you know, in the visible church today uh, and always have been who reject this clear teaching of scripture and find it offensive. I used to find it offensive personally myself. We have seen as a church a few people leave this church over the years over this exact doctrine, sad to say. In his book, Old Paths, J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, No part of the Christian religion has been so much disputed, rejected, and reviled as this. None has called forth so much of that enmity against God, which is the grand mark of the carnal mind. Thousands of so-called Christians profess to believe the atonement, salvation by grace, and justification by faith, and yet refuse to look at the doctrine of election. The very mention of the word to some persons is enough to call forth expressions of anger, ill temper, and passions. To some, it's fighting words. That's what he's saying. I've had pastors in town who I get along with fantastically. I had one of them email me one day and asked if I believed in election. And I think he was hoping and expecting I was going to say no. And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, and here's why. You know, and we're on good terms. We didn't fight. But uh, in some cases, I think this rejection of this doctrine of, of election can be traced back, uh, not in all cases, but in some cases can be traced back to a misunderstanding of what it does or does not actually mean. Ryle says the following, he says, No doctrine of scripture, perhaps, has suffered so much damage from the erroneous conceptions of foes and the incorrect description of friends as that which is now before us, that is, election. Even people that hold to it misconstrue it and misstate it sometimes in such a way that it brings the doctrine itself into disrepute. Many of those who reject it, whom Ryle calls foes, not of us but of the doctrine, uh, conceive of it wrongly. They often caricature it in such a way as to distort it entirely. And many of those who actually accept it do such a poor job explaining it that they bring the doctrine itself into disrepute. In his very helpful little book, 
uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. It's a very short book. It's about 126 pages, depending on the edition you get. But Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, Packer makes the case, I think, quite well, that many of those who reject or profess to reject this doctrine show that in some ways, at least in practice, they really do believe it in their heart of hearts. They reject it in some ways outwardly, but deep down in their heart of hearts, they know it to be true. Ironically enough, he offers two or three arguments, depending how you number them, all of which are related to how we pray. See if you identify with these things in the way that you pray. You may be a closet Calvinist after, after all. The first thing he mentions is simply the fact that as believers, you pray. How many of you are believers and how many of you pray? I hope the same hands would go up both times. If, you're, if you don't pray, I have to say you're probably not a believer. There are some who pray that aren't believers, but if you're a believer, you pray. And the older you get, the probably the more that you pray, right? He says the very fact that you are a Christian, uh, sorry, the very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. In other words, if you believe in God, you believe that he's God, that he's sovereign over all things. And if not, if you're praying to a God who is not sovereign, you are praying to a God of your own imagination. As God, by definition, he is sovereign over all things and in control over all things. Well, the first argument or proof that Packer offers in relation to this is that when we pray as Christians, we thank God for our own conversion and salvation. We know we're not like the, what is it, the, uh, the tax collector, oh, no, it was the, uh, the Pharisee in the temple when he prayed to God, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, that I believe when they don't. That, that's not how we, I hope that's not how any of us pray. We know the only thing making us believe and someone else not believe is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We, we thank God for our own conversion and salvation. Packer says this, in the first place, you give, thank, you give God thanks for your conversion. Now, why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself. He saved you. We all know that to be the case, and we pray, I hope we pray, like that. Paul himself certainly thanked God for the conversion of believers, as we saw in those passages in First and Second Thessalonians. Paul, in fact, in his letters, was always thanking God for the faith and salvation of believers. It's almost every letter he brings it up in some way, shape, or form. Philippians 1, verses 3 to 6, one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament, Paul writes the following, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Why did God thank God? Why did Paul thank God for them with such great joy? He says, because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul thank God for the believers in Philippi? Because God saved them. Because God, he thanks God that they, they partnered in the gospel with him from the first day until now. And, and as if that's not clear enough, what does he say at the end? That he was convinced that he, that's God, he that began a good work in them 
would bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who brought them to conversion in the first place? Did they do it? Were they smarter than the other people? No, God did that. God granted them faith and repentance. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had it. And God chose to do that and set his love on them from before the foundation of the world to do just that. The second argument related to prayer that Packer mentions, I think, seems inescapable, at least to me. Not only do we pray, not only do we thank God for our own conversion and salvation, but we also, I think we all do, we pray for the conversion of others. How many of you, and every hand I think would go up if I were to ask you to do it, how many of you have loved ones, family members that you have been praying for maybe for years that they might be converted and saved? Guess what? You're a Calvinist. Hate to break the news to you, but that's what you are if you pray that way, if you understand what you're doing when you pray. And this is what this is what Packer says. He says, when you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat him to do that very thing, and your confidence in asking rests on the certainty that he is able to do what you ask. And so indeed he is. This conviction which animates your intercessions is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. In prayer then, and the Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays, you know that it is God who saves men. You know what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. The most hardcore Arminian you'll ever meet in his heart of hearts knows better and he knows it and shows it by how he or she prays. We don't pray that God would just bring them to a place where they'll hear the gospel and that just maybe they on their own without any help from him in drawing them will on their own come to faith in Christ. We know that won't happen. We know everyone is dead in sin outside of Christ and dead people don't believe anything. It takes the work of God bringing them to new life from the dead and drawing them to Christ by faith to do that. And so God has chosen to do that from all eternity past. This is the simple, the plain, unvarnished teaching of Scripture, all from beginning to end. God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. He has chosen from eternity all those who are the objects of his mercy, and we pray accordingly. We pray knowing that God is the one who does all these things. And so I'll ask you this morning, do you find yourself at times struggling to accept this doctrine of grace? And I, I would suggest that if that's the case, it's, it might be because you don't actually understand that that's what it is. That election is all about the grace of God and nothing more. That is why this doctrine is found and taught throughout God's word in both the Old and New Testaments. That's what it's about. God's grace in saving sinners. If someone were to ask you one day, what's this election thing about? What's predestination about? There's your answer. It's about the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, saving sinners. If God did not choose and choose to save, no one would ever choose to believe and be saved. None would be saved. We would all justly perish in our sin and unbelief. But God has blessed us, as Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
And what's the first blessing Paul mentions in that text in Ephesians chapter 1? Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, the first blessing he actually mentions by name, he says, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And what's the purpose of that choosing? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we might be justified in Christ. It's another way of saying justified. Well, the last but not least, we have to briefly look at the doctrine of election applied. How does it matter, as, as Rob often says, where the rubber meets the road? Uh, what's the practical application of this doctrine? And if it doesn't have application, we're not understanding it rightly. That's the way Paul brings it up, isn't it? Paul doesn't just bring this up randomly for no apparent reason. He, just, 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 he doesn't just say, well, I'm going to cause some trouble uh, in, in the church at Ephesus or wherever Timothy is by just bringing this up randomly because I know it's going to make some people mad. That's not what Paul, what Paul was doing. Uh, Paul brings it up in context for a reason. He's not treating it as some abstract notion having no relevance to life and ministry at all, far from it. In fact, it's precisely because of God's sovereign purpose and grace and election, Paul tells us himself that's why he could endure whatever sufferings he, that came his way for the sake of Christ and his gospel. He knew that the word of God could not be bound he knew that God would save sinners at the preaching of the gospel. Why? Because God had chosen a people for himself from all eternity. The truth of divine election meant that Paul's zeal, Paul's breath, and even his blood were not spent in vain. He wasn't wasting his life running around all over Asia Minor preaching the gospel, being beaten, arrested, shipwrecked, and all these things and eventually killed. Why? Because God had purpose to save sinners from before the foundation of the world. And Paul knew that. That's why Paul had such confidence. William Hendrickson, the great New Testament commentator, writes this. Instead of condemning this doctrine, a person should first of all prove that, it has, that it's not scriptural. It fits beautifully into the present context, this verse, that is. Paul courageously endures all things because he knows that the word of God will certainly triumph in the hearts and lives of the elect. Many will reject the gospel. They always have. The fact that Paul wrote this from a prison cell tells you that's, that's the case. Hostility will always be in some ways a reaction by some to the preaching of the gospel. So why keep doing it? Because we know that God has chosen to save many that he has set his love upon them from before the foundation of the world. And that, that being the case, the preaching of the gospel will be the power of God unto salvation. There's a book called Chosen in Christ by Dr. Cornelis Venema, and he writes the following. He says, in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul does not give as elaborate a statement of what election means, but he does appeal to the theme of election to explain what motivates him in his own apostolic ministry. That's what he's doing here. He does appeal to the theme of election to explain what motivates him in his own apostolic ministry. Far from undermining his sense of urgency or zeal to preach the gospel, Paul regards the fact that his ministry will serve to bring the elect to salvation as the most compelling reason to engage in the task, however difficult it may be. 
we who believe in election should be the most evangelistic people on earth. That has been in the case. That has been the case in the past. There are evangelists, plenty of them, very well-known ones that you might recognize the names of, who were staunch Calvinists for lack of better terms. George Whitfield, a contemporary of John Wesley, was a staunch Calvinist, and you would have been hard-pressed to find someone who traveled more miles preaching the gospel in his day. Charles Spurgeon, no less than Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers and an evangelist of the First Order, was a Calvinist, plain and simple. And that's what motivated them, we think, in what they did in preaching the gospel. So let us not reject the doctrine of election, but rather embrace it as the clear teaching of Scripture. Let us also not pit this great doctrine of grace against the equally clear commands of Christ that his people pray and that we make disciples of all the nations. It's not appropriate, it's disobedience to take what God has revealed in his word and pit it against his own commands. God doesn't say he set his, his love upon somebody and chosen them from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, you don't have to preach the gospel. That would have been news to Paul. It's the exact opposite. We, we pray and we preach the gospel because God has chosen to save many. If we use our Calvinism, so-called, as an excuse for laziness or sloth in these things, uh, we show that we really don't yet understand or believe these things as well as we ought. May God correct us in our thought and practice if that is the case. Let this truth do for us what it did for Paul. Let it spur us on and encourage us in testifying to the gospel of Christ, knowing that God has from all eternity chosen a people for himself, and so our efforts will bear fruit by his grace to his glory. Amen.